Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today, I'm joined by guest David Sherman, CTO and co-founder of Perennial, to talk about their verification platform for climate-smart agriculture. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. David, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Perennial? Yeah, so I have always been into climate. Um, what has been less clear is exactly what to do about it because it's such a huge problem. So I started off all the way back in high school, actually, as an intern here in Boulder, Colorado, at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration up the road. Um, I was in a gas lab. We were analyzing atmospheric samples. Um, I was the intern who actually drove the samples from the collection site back to the lab. But that was right around the time when we crossed the milestone of 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, so it was just kind of an eerie uh, foreshadowing of what was going to happen. And it inspired me to really focus my life on this as the problem of my generation. Uh, from there, I went on to study carbon sequestration uh, and this interesting field called geoengineering, um, also in Boulder. Geoengineering is kind of really large scale ways of hacking the planet to try to cool the climate. And it's probably not a good idea to do. Um, so started looking for other other methods. Um, got pretty pessimistic about climate in general around then. Um, it's just such a massive problem. And there are so few things in the world that even mathematically have the potential to solve it because of the amount of carbon we're emitting every year. Uh, took a took a little break. I studied computer science at Brown University, uh, wanting to build rather than study. Um, from there, I went to the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab for a bit uh, on one of the Mars rover teams. And I had actually met my co-founders at Brown. And coincidentally, they were working in Los Angeles at the same time that I was at JPL, which is right by Los Angeles. So I started helping them out. And what we originally started as a way to use drones and aircraft to take images of the earth and use machine learning to detect farm properties uh, turned into something much more uh, and much more impactful for me where we started looking at carbon. Um, and since then we've upscaled to satellites. Um, we are able to offer insights into climate smart agriculture uh, how carbon is building in soil over time using machine learning uh, pretty much everywhere, which has been really exciting. Could you tell me a little bit more about what Perennial does and, and why this is important for fighting climate change? So the Perennial's mission is to unlock agricultural soils as the world's largest carbon sink. Um, and it goes back to that theoretical potential to store carbon. Almost nothing compares to the potential of natural ecosystems soil being one of those. So today, soil actually contains more than three times the amount of carbon that the atmosphere does. So a really small percentage change in the soil's carbon pool is a huge impact on atmospheric carbon. And like I said, there's just nothing that really compares to that. Um, so to do that, we provide digital tools that accelerate the adoption of climate-smart agriculture. Our flagship product is a machine learning-based, uh, data-driven, way of quantifying changes in soil carbon over time. So this is one of the most costly and time-consuming parts of enrolling farmers in climate-smart programs. You either have to go out in the field to take samples, or you have to run 
a physics simulation that takes in tons and tons of farming practice data, which is really hard to get and difficult for farmers to part with. Um, and we're trying to kind of similar to other areas, you know, bring machine learning and AI into an area um, that is kind of stuck in the, the status quo. So how does the machine learning component of this work? Yeah, so what we do is we take a ton of different geospatial data sets. There's all sorts of stuff in there, like topography, uh, climatology, hydrology, satellite remote sensing. Um, and we do a bunch of feature engineering and pre-processing on those. And the target variable is soil organic carbon. Um, and so all of those factors are things that are highly correlated with how the soil ecosystem works, the factors that drive carbon formation in the soil. Um, and so we're able to set up the supervised machine learning problem that way um, and detect changes in soil carbon at scale uh, back through time in different geographies, uh, focusing right now on the United States and Australia. You mentioned a couple different geospatial data modalities. How do you gather this data and how do you gather the annotations you need in order to train models? That's the fun part. It always is. Uh, we actually use a lot of open data sets for the geospatial. Um, and really the, the trick is how you pre-process them. But the government satellites are really good. So the Landsat program, uh, the European Space Agency Sentinel program, they have very, very good spectral calibration. Um, they have very, very good consistency of when they revisit the same spot. Um, decent spatial resolution, decent revisit time. So those are all important. Um, and then the, the kind of secret sauce, I guess, is in the ground data collection. So we have teams of soil samplers who go out every year, multiple times a year, and they collect you know, the gold standard of soil samples from these fields, which is literally you, you drive a probe into the ground, um, you take that to a lab, you burn it in an elemental analyzer, uh, all sorts of fancy stuff, and you can detect all sorts of properties like organic carbon, inorganic carbon, and that becomes the label for the machine learning problem. So it's really about how extensively you collect that. We have some of our own analysis techniques that make it easier to uh, model changes at depth, for example. Um, so it's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Okay. Geospatial data is a challenge in itself. There's different forms of it, different instruments, different spatial, temporal, and spectral resolutions. What are some of the unique challenges that your team encounters in applying machine learning to this type of data? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, one is picking the right satellites for the use case at hand. So, like I said, the NASA and European Space Agency satellites are really good with spectral calibration, uh, and they're really good with consistency um, every time they visit the same spot. And that's pretty important because we're essentially looking at the spectral signature of the soil. That's the thing that has correlation to the carbon content. Um, for other use cases, you know, you might want a higher resolution image, or you might want something that flies over the same spot every day. You don't care as much about those other factors. Uh, the, the other the other thing um, is intercalibration between different satellites. So if you are using different satellites, models are pretty sensitive to slight differences in how those satellites capture images. So you, you can either train the model on multiple satellites, or you can try to do a transformation to make one satellite's data look like another satellite's data. Um, that's one thing. 
And then the, the really kind of interesting part, I think, is the multiple dimensions that you have to be aware of transferring your model. So you have space, you want to be able to make a model that performs elsewhere where you didn't train it in space. So say you trained on Iowa, you want to make sure that it's not going to work only on Iowa, ideally, uh, that it's going to work everywhere or in the fields within Iowa that you didn't sample. You want to make sure that it's good there. But then there's also temporal transferability. So back in time, you want to make sure you're not only able to capture one point in time, but instead um, detect changes. So that is all uh, kind of the interesting stuff with geospatial. So what do you do about the, those variations across satellites and locations and time? Do you just need to collect a hugely diverse training data set or are there algorithmic things that you can do? Yeah, I mean, training data is always the easy answer. <laughs> more training data is always better. Um, I'm always pushing for more training data constantly. But in lieu of that, you know, we try to use the same satellite if we can, um, if the coverage is, is good enough. Um, and, you know, where we might have to use multiple satellites, I think training the model on both of those satellites has been helpful. Um, the radiometric correction is a little bit more finicky because it's kind of hard to make the images match in every single context since it really depends on what you're looking at. But yeah, in general, it's try to be consistent and collect more ground truth data and get a good understanding of where your training data set is, is lacking and you know, where you can make some, some easy, impactful moves to strengthen it. How do you go about understand where where it's lacking then? Yeah, so so we're working on this now where we're stratifying our training data across the kind of variables that matter. Um, and in this case, the variables that matter are stuff that affects soil formation. So climate zone, uh, how the land has been managed, like what has been growing on it and you know what kind of farming practices have been done, the soil characteristics, and so, you know, on the one hand, you might think that two fields right next to each other are pretty similar, and usually they are. But if one field has a different soil type than the other one, they would actually be less similar to each other than two fields that are pretty far apart and, and have the same soil type. Um, so making sure that we can classify all of our training data uh, within kind of those key aspects that, that we identified um, we're starting to see kind of where we're, where we're strong, where we're weak, um, how to complete the rest of the picture. So some of that knowledge sounds very domain specific. Do your machine learning engineers know enough about agriculture and soils to identify these, or are they working very closely with others who can provide that expertise? That's one of the things I really love about this team is it's just so multidisciplinary. So we have machine learning engineers with, you know, kind of classical statisticians working with remote sensing scientists and crop scientists, and it all kind of comes together. You know, at, at some level, they're speaking slightly different languages, but I think we've done a really good job of learning how each other communicate um, and how to get what we need from each other for that domain expertise. And that's the that's the cool thing about the multidisciplinary teams. Like, you can get an answer, um, just you know having 
machine learning scientists approach a problem. Like data scientists are really good at what they do. And if they have a data set, they're usually uh, quite good at, at seeing the patterns and, and seeing how to treat it. But to get that last little bit of performance or that last little bit of stability, the domain specific knowledge is, is pretty irreplaceable. Uh, so it's been really good to see that come together. So what level do these different expertise interact? Are they talking on a daily basis w within your team? Are they you know, touching base at, at the end of each sprint? How have you found this to work well for you? Yeah, definitely at the end of each sprint, but really ad hoc in the in the middle. And so the, the lines of communication are super open. You know, if anyone has a question or an issue that comes up, you know, they'll they'll ask it. The the right people will jump on it. Um, so then we're not, you know, we're trying to strike the balance between not having too much communication and slowing ourselves down there, but also making sure that when something comes up, it can get addressed. I imagine that with all the variations you see across different fields and different geographic locations, it's very important to validate the models that you have. Are there any kind of special efforts or special tools that you put in for your team to tackle that point of view? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, so we, we use mostly a geographically independent cross-validation. So we can adjust the scale of that. The thing we usually use is like the level of an agricultural field because that's what matters for the carbon markets. But say we're trying to optimize the within field variation in carbon, which we can do, then we'll do a sample level, uh, leave one out cross-validation. So we'll train a model on everything except for one, um, predict on that one that was held out, um, capture that um, observed versus expected. Um, or rather observed versus predicted, and then repeat that for, for everything in the set. Um, and that's how we, we kind of build our, our metrics and figure out where we're performing well, where we're not performing. And that can be upscaled and downscaled pretty, pretty much arbitrarily. So like I said, you could do it for a single soil sample, you could do it for a single field, you could even do it for a single region or domain. And that validation step, it sounds like that's very essential for uh determining whether your model is generalized to the different types of scenarios that you, you hope they will. Yeah, definitely. And, and there's an additional level of complexity too, because there are standard setters and regulators in the carbon markets. And, you know, you essentially have to show that your model works in certain conditions in order to be able to generate verified carbon credits. So how does the, the regulation in, the, in this industry work? I'm somewhat familiar with it in the medical sides, but not for carbon. <laughs> yeah, carbon is emerging and changing every day, which is exciting and at times frustrating. Um, there are kind of two branches. One are government regulated carbon markets. Um, Australia is a good example of that. And the other big one is the voluntary carbon markets where you'll have uh, non-governmental organizations like Vera or Gold Standard or the Climate Action Reserve that function as the standard setters. Um, and they're the ones who define the methodology. They're the ones who validate projects. So a project is something where a group of people have undertaken an activity that is supposed to store carbon. Um, and then they're the ones who validate that and eventually issue the carbon credits based on the measured um, sequestration or the measured amount of carbon that you took out of the atmosphere or you avoided putting into the atmosphere. 
is there any advice you could offer to other founders of AI powered startups? Lots <laughs> to try to pick the highlights. Um, just really respect the data, be really diligent about how it's collected, how it's stored. If it undergoes transformations, making sure that you've stored the metadata to reverse that wherever you need to, because errors will come up. Data is data, especially when you're taking in stuff that was generated or collected by humans. Uh, it's a classic issue. Um, and then collect more training data than you think you need. I think that's especially important for startups because when you're early, especially, it's it can be really tempting to save on costs, you know, maximize runway. You know, you don't have a product without a good model if you're an AI powered startup. And there will always be issues. And it's way better to have more data than you thought you would need than you do your whole problem and you have less and you can't get those performance numbers up to where you need them to make a good customer experience. Yeah, and you need that data for training and you need it for validation. So, but both of those yeah, things are essential. Exactly. Yeah, great point. And I guess the other, the other piece of advice is just find good ways for your market to communicate about model performance. Like there's so many metrics that you can produce that um, will give a sense of model performance. And a lot of the audiences will probably be non-technical, especially in sales conversations. So really find that balance of how do we talk about the models in enough detail that it makes sense and is trustworthy, but not too much detail that you're like diving too far into the weeds and giving unnecessary information, like pick your narrative, um, you know, generate those metrics uh, to support that narrative and then have a, a kind of well-formed uh, concerted effort way of sharing those. So tell me a bit more about that. So how has the story of metrics played out for, for your team and how, how has that evolved as the company's evolved? Yeah. I mean, it's a, another great question. So it really comes down to, um, I think, numbers that a wider audience can identify with and kind of know what they mean. Um, so when we started out, uh, I, don't, I don't think we did a very good job of this. And we would basically share the kind of normal slew of lots of metrics that you might generate as a data science team to understand how your models are doing. And those aren't really interpretable. Um, and the point is like when you're selling to a customer, it's not a science demonstration, it's it's sales, right? So narrative is important. Uh, what we ended up doing is, is something maybe a little bit unconventional, but you know, we, we started thinking in terms of accuracy and it's kind of hard to define accuracy when you're looking at a, you know, continuous regression problem rather than classification. Like normally what you would look at is error, but people don't really understand immediately what error means, um, but they do understand like, oh, 90% accurate. People kind of understand what that is. So we kind of took accuracy to mean one minus error, which is again, a little unconventional, but it, it is what resonated with the market and people said, okay, so you're 90% accurate. That makes sense to me rather than, you know, we have 10% mean absolute percentage error. Um, and as long as you explain how you, those metrics were obtained, um, you know, I think that's, that's the important part, have something that will stick in people's minds that is truthful 
and that you can back up with with how you got there. Yeah, that communication piece is definitely key, and it, and it might and often is different than the actual metric that your your model is optimizing while you're training it. And that's not always obvious from the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Where do you see the impact of perennial in three to five years? I think we have a chance to do something really special and long lasting within the carbon markets. Um, and it goes back to unlocking one of the largest potential ways to remove carbon from the atmosphere. So there are all sorts of carbon credits out there um, through all sorts of amazingly creative ideas of removing carbon from the air. But the sad part is most of them just don't have a high capacity um especially when you compare it to the amount that we emit every year but, but things like forests and things like soil are the opposite they could account for like a quarter of all of our emissions if we do them properly but they're difficult because natural systems aren't permanent um you need to have kind of other regulatory things in place uh to make sure that the carbon you store doesn't get reversed and people haven't figured that out yet. Like it's still very much an open question for how do we do this with nature-based solutions? And we're at a critical time where we get to help write the rule book for nature-based. And it's important because there's no really other way to have the impact we need to make a difference on climate change. So it's really hard, but also there's a huge opportunity. Um, and so I think, you know, in the next three to five years, we have the chance to take a leading role in how nature-based carbon from soil is quantified, uh, how that is transformed into a carbon credit that buyers can trust um, when they purchase an offset. And it really just goes back to how we stock the shelves of the carbon markets. Almost all the carbon credits that are available have been bought up and there's a huge supply constraint. And so, you know, I would really love to see that all change in the next three to five years. Well, David, this has been great. Your team is doing some really interesting and impactful work with satellite imagery and fighting climate change. I expect the insights you've shared will be valuable to other machine learning companies. Where can people find out more about you online? Yeah, um, you can go to our website, perennial.earth, and also our LinkedIn. Uh, we're pretty active on there. And real quick, I would love to thank my my team and shout them out you know i'm just kind of the messenger for their amazing work in ml um, engineering and science and you know you can go reach out to them they're very open to talk to anybody and we'd love to hear from you great thanks for joining me today thank you all right everyone thanks for listening i'm heather couture and i hope you join me again next time for impact ai